Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, director Todd Field returns to the cinema at long last with Tar. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. We're ending the year with a great filmmaker, a first-time guest on the podcast. Uh, Mr. Todd Field is on the show today talking all things Tar, which is a movie that I positively adore, starring Kate Blanchett. Look it up. We had her on just a couple of months back. Uh, but I also love his earlier work, In the Bedroom, Oscar-nominated film, Little Children, Oscar-nominated film. These are two exceptional works. And Tar, if you don't know, is a bit of a character study, kind of a thriller, kind of a drama, kind of a black comedy at times. I appreciate it on all those levels and more. Uh, it asks big questions. You will ask big questions of it, and it will stick with you for some time. And that's all you can ask for in a great piece of work. So I was more than delighted to help spread the good word by having this chat with Todd on the podcast here. Uh, he is a he's a fascinating guy. This is a guy who. Um, for some, maybe came to prominence with a, a decent acting career. I mean, I remember him in Ruby in Paradise and in, in Twister and, of course, in Eyes Wide Shut. And then he made that difficult transition into becoming a, a true master behind the camera. Um, he's got some great stories going way back when. His maybe seemingly all um, unlikely friendship with Adam Sandler, unlikely to some, um, but they have remained friends. They're actually talking about collaborating, which is a fascinating um, idea. Uh, he talks, of course, about the previous films, but also about Stanley Kubrick. Eyes Wide Shut was a major film for him, a turning point in his career for a number of reasons, and he's got some great stories about that production. Um, yeah, I really vibed, I think, with, with Todd, and I just I just loved geeking out with him about movie making and a, a really fascinating career. So, And also just a good excuse, frankly, to spread the good word on a movie that just deserves as much love uh, as it can get. Tar uh, will get a bunch of Oscar nominations, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, like if you haven't seen it, put it up, put it at the top of your list, guys. This is a, this is a really special one. Um, other things to mention. Well, look, we're, we're wrapping up the year with a great podcast. I hope you've enjoyed what we've had to offer in 2022. It's been a year of a lot of firsts for Happy, Sad, Confused, some major guests we've never had before. A lot of live events, which I was thrilled to do at 92NY and Symphony Space. I'm happy to say there will be many more to come in the new year. Um, we've launched the video versions of the podcast on YouTube. Remember to subscribe on YouTube to youtube.com slash Josh Horowitz. All of that is free. You can watch virtually every uh, episode of the current podcast in video form if you so desire. And of course, we have the Patreon going. I think it's now in our second year, second or third year. And um, that's, that's your place if you want the early access, the discount codes, all the cool stuff. Remember to go to patreon.com slash happy, sad, confused. All the info, don't worry. It's in the show notes. You know the deal. Um, all right, let's get to it, guys. Let's close out 2022 in style. I hope you guys are having a great end of the year, a great holiday season. I hope you're getting some well-deserved rest. Uh, sit back and relax and enjoy this chat with a truly talented filmmaker. Here is me and Todd Field. There's no pomp and circumstance except to say I'm such a fan of Mr. Todd Field's work and it's a privilege. Uh, his new film is Tar. I've been obsessed with it ever since I saw it. You will be too. If you haven't seen it, go seek it out. 
Todd, welcome officially to the Happy Sad Confused podcast, man. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. So um, I was going to say you're a first time guest on the podcast, but I mean, to be fair, there weren't podcasts around the last time you had a film. So you. Yeah, yeah there weren't even cars then. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically the Flintstones. Out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, no, but it, it, it's a privilege. It's given me an excuse to go back and revisit uh, some of your earlier work in the bedroom and little children this uh, this week and all just amazing movies, man. Talk to me first about just what life is like right now, day to day. You know, you have birthed this amazing, unusual child into the world, Tar, and the reviews have been great. And it's the silly award season, which is silly, but also great. Um, are you obsessing about how people are interpreting it? Are you enjoying it? Give me a sense of what life is like right now for you, man. Well, it's, it's it, you know, um, I started work on this in March 2020, and I haven't had a day off since. So um, it's kind of like one very long, surreal day, Josh. Um, I, I, I'm looking forward um, to the future when I can kind of stand back and, and really look at the thing, you know, what it is. Um, but I'm still very much in it. Um, yeah. These are all different processes that... Uh, that are necessary to, to filmmaking. Um, some of them are, are very physical. Some of them are, um, uh, you know, just a, it's really, it, it's an awful lot of time, you know, I mean, and that's sort of, uh, I guess that's the thing that, uh, that really, um, is different for me, you know, cause normally I work in advertising. So, uh, you start something, you shoot it, you edit it in a few days and it's, you know, in front of the Olympics two days later in front of a billion people and you're done and you don't think about it again. And this is a, this is a very, very different sort of thing. And as you point out, uh, you know, the last film I made a hundred years ago, um, you know, you would do a couple of days of press and, um, you know, maybe go to a festival or two and enjoy uh, the sort of, um, you know, the, the kind of privilege of being at a festival and being around your other colleagues and, and their work and and do you know do a couple of things and that was sort of it you know um and once you know once the, the film you know monica willie and i finished the film you know in terms of the the final sound and the grade um really in in the middle of august so um venice started less than two weeks later um and it's been sort of nonstop then uh, since then. So um, it's a very long, digressive, non-answer to your question. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, no, it's all. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get it, and it's strange to kind of to see the cadence of your career because you know you make these two films within about five years of each other, and then you have this extended gap. But it's like not like as you say. You it's funny you just kind of termed yourself like I usually work in advertising. Like it's it's strange for me to think of you saying that about yourself because of course that's kind of invisible to us like the 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 way you've made a living frankly probably the last 15 years um the stuff i mean ha have you been able to derive beyond an income derive artistic satisfaction from working in that field the last 15 years or was something occasionally lacking? yeah occasionally you have i mean i have and and people do um you know 
I mean, Stanley Kubrick was ex like obsessed with like, you know, Lowenbrow commercials. Like how could you have that much story in 30 seconds, you know? So there is something to be said for the form. It's a very tough form, just like short films are much harder than feature films and short stories and novellas are much harder than novels, you know? Um, so there's a certain kind of, um, you know, by necessity sort of, um, fitness as a as a filmmaker and, and um and strength that you gain and confidence you gain technically um because you're at the forefront essentially running a, a skunk works for the feature business which is very glacial so you're you're experimenting with camera systems and glass and equipment and uh, technology that long before tv or feature people ever see it and that right. part of it's extremely exciting where it's different is um uh, and and, and I, I've, I've I've said this before because I've been answered, I've had to answer this question. You know, it's a it's a it's a, a very logical question to ask someone that hasn't made a film in so long. Which is the difference is the first day of shooting, say for instance, on Tar, the very first setup for for us um, was not with the orchestra. It was actually up in the rake um, for the scene that takes place right after um, the first orchestra rehearsal, and that was with. Kate Blanchett, of course, uh, Noemi Merlant, and, and Nina Haas. And I remember um, the very first take of that scene, uh, this sort of, you know, getting a very tight feeling in my chest and feeling um, a little bit emotional and it, because it just suddenly hit me, oh, yeah, oh, I remember what this was like. Yeah. You know, it, the difference is, is that you're doing something that has a lot of meaning for you, um, but mainly that you're working with other artists that are so incredible on camera that can do such amazing things um, in dialogue with those artists. And, and that is where it's very different than advertising. Most of the time you're shooting inanimate objects or you're shooting people that do commercials that in most cases are not actors and don't even pretend to be actors. Right. The star is the the Subaru. The star is the, uh, is the, the object often those. Yeah. Um, I'm curious yeah, the haircut. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I promise not to obsess over the gap. We're going to get to the film because I, it's worthy of the discussion. But I'm curious, like you weren't in director jail. It's not like you had made two very acclaimed movies. One financially very successful in the bedroom. I mean, if you look at the financials on that, it's kind of an amazing thing and very telling of the time. Like that movie made, I think, $45 million. And that's just not the environment right now for, for that kind of film unfortunately um even little children which financially wasn't a success garnered a bunch of oscar nominations is hugely revered um i'm just curious like you know i look at the wikipedia entry it's always telling when there's like a section of unrealized projects <laughs> on, a, on a filmmaker there is that section for you todd yeah. did you did you yeah, feel well, I, I, yeah <laughs> i mean that's i don't i think it's i think it's fairly typical for all filmmakers you know um, i guess yeah. and then the question and the question is just sort of the you know the difference between um the tension and the desire to to be on the floor at all costs you know and the difference for me is is that um i only wanted to be on the floor if if i can be doing exactly what i want to do yeah um, and if i can't i'd rather be on the floor doing something else like selling a subaru so <laughs> um you know i mean that, i think that that's that's the essential difference and you know as you point out yes um in the bedroom was one of the most profitable films of of ever you know i mean we made that film for nothing um and that was a very particular time in the business where we had um 
you know, where we had the typical so-called fourth quarter audience. And that audience was um, at the very least had an undergraduate degree. 75% um, of the audience was female. And the age of that audience was, you know, 40 to 70 years old. Um, and so in, in many ways, looking at in the bedroom from the outside and people did, because everyone passed on that movie, everyone, uh, except for good machine. Um, they all say, well, this is about 50 year old people that, you know, lose a right. child. Who's going to be interested in that? I was like, well, that's actually that those are the people that go to fourth quarter films that if you make something for them, they'll come. And they did um, for little children. You know, we were at a studio with Bob Shea and Bob, you know, was gone when that film was greenlit. Um, and I was warned by Toby Emmerich and everyone else at, at New Line that if I wanted to, I should take the film to another studio because he was going to bury it, which is exactly what he did. He never really released the film. We had a trailer like six weeks before it was released, which, which back then, no internet. It was all theatrical in front of one movie was a disaster, you know, um, and they never released the film on more than 42 screens ever. I didn't even, realize even, that. That's even crazy. when we got Oscar nominations. So, I mean, Meryl yeah. Streep got up, you know, um, at the Golden Globes that year, which also they didn't show a clip for the film, even though it was nominated for Best Picture, um, large part because I think that Bob Shea made sure they didn't have a clip. Um, wow. And it essentially did like a 30 minute, you know, um, plea uh, to, uh, to, to theater owners to show the film and i remember i was sitting next to bob shit at the time and he leaned in and whispered in my ear they should be calling the studio heads um it, you know it wasn't a particularly nice wow. experience and so, so um so ironic given also like the first one was with miramax like were you did harvey scissorhands come in at 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 uh in the bedroom at all did you have it sounds like you had actually a decent experience the first time around ironically um well i had a great experience with good machine and with green street who funded yeah. the film but it wasn't a miramax film i mean and harvey didn't buy it it was bought by mark gill and anyos mantre at sundance and i wasn't part of those conversations i had met with peter rice uh, and i'd met with some other people and i was called and told that that it was just a fact they were selling it to miramax and wow. at the time i i literally uh, went into the bathroom and I threw up and, and, and I, I was very emotional. My wife was about ready to take me to the hospital. Cause that was the last place I wanted that film because it, you'd heard it the stories by then, I assume you had you, it was. Yeah. I mean, it was that, but it was also, it wasn't the kind of, it felt like it should be at like Sony classics, like with, with, you know, with those guys, yeah. um, it, it was a small film. It wasn't, you know, Shakespeare in love and it wasn't, yeah. chocolate or anything like that and it's funny because people talk about that film as a miramax film which always kind of makes me cringe uh Got it. It, it really had nothing to do with that studio at all so then this experience with focus which is a, a beautiful one in that Yes, all these after all these false starts of trying of not willing to make compromises for something that you didn't want to didn't want to you know invest two years of your life in they essentially, from what I gather, say, write what you want. And we're we're basically in at a certain budget, I assume. Like this, this is not how it happens. And must have been in some ways a bizarre but beautiful thing <laughs> to happen, especially during the pandemic when we were all going crazy. Give me a sense of sort of the circumstances and the unusualness of this arrangement with Tar for for you and Focus. Well, it was it it was unusual. Um you know, and as you point out, it was a very long time uh, between, uh, you know, sort of um, coming out of little children and, and making tar. Um, and, you know, people 
you know, people have asked over the last few months, they always say, well, why did, why so long? And I was like, well, I was waiting, you know, I was waiting for a call from Peter Kujowski, you know, um, because, you know, Peter, um, going back to Good Machine, you know, Peter came up from Good Machine. So um, that was very much like family, you know, and for, for Peter to say, um, we just want to make a film with you, um, write whatever you like, you know, was extraordinary, you know, um, and to be paid that kind of um, respect, you know, I was desperate to meet it. Um, and, um, and as you say, it was the beginning of the pandemic. It was, it was March, you know, 2020. And you had to really seriously ask yourself, would there be theatrical or anything on the other side of it? The world was ending, you know, people we knew were sick and were dying. I lost my father at the beginning of the pandemic and, um, you know, to show up at, at a table every day and ask yourself, does this matter? Um, uh, was a very, very um, uh, real existential question. Yeah. Um, but on, on the other hand, it was, you know, it was an incredible gift because um, I had a place to escape to every day for a few months. Um, and that was a, it was a, a real lucky break. How much of where you were, you described that time in your life, which was, fraught for all of us and i you know my condolences on your on your dad but like this is a, this is a film that has kind of this existential indefinable dread that kind of like hangs over it you can't quite define it for a while it's the first time i was watching it i just i was uneasy and i mean as a compliment i, I felt like something was coming and i wasn't sure what um how much did that inform was that informed by where you were at personally in the world that was falling apart at the time, where was your head at, and how do you think it ended up on the page? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, um, I don't really ask myself those kinds of questions. Um, you know, I'm probably, you know, strangely out of touch. You know, um, in terms of when I sit down to to execute material, I just kind of follow my nose. You know, so. Um, do you think about I, genre? Like, are you like, cause this, again, I feel like I've read like five different reviews that could all cite it as a different genre, as a, a thriller, a character study, a black comedy. <laughs> um, is that helpful for you? And do you delight in that it is kind of indefinable? Um, well, you know, I, um, I think that what you're pointing out in terms of um, asking the question, do you think that the pandemic informed the writing of the of the script i would say 100 percent, absolutely um in terms of you know i said this to my wife the other night i i couldn't have written the script if, if the world wasn't ending um so probably a lot of the enthusiasms that i have um as an amateur film goer you know um and as a student of film um probably wound up in a container um and um i'll, I'll sort of leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it's funny you, you put it that i mean because this is about the world ending as it were for lydia tar at least the world that she's constructed for herself um and she is a constructed a reconstructed individual um it's uh needless to say an amazing performance from kate blanchett who you wrote the, the script for um do you, how much love do you have for her? I mean, she's again, someone you can hate. You could have some admiration for, you could admire her talents and uh, dismiss how she's conducted herself personally, but 
needless to say, she's a complex figure. I guess, do you have much sympathy for her? Do you view her as a tragic figure? What's your attitude about your main character here? I have many feelings about her. I mean, she is accomplished. She is um, logical. She is hypocritical. She is capricious. She is um, uh, absurd. She is lacking in some basic self-awareness. Um, she's a human being to me, you know, so she's very real to me. Um, and I feel differently about her depending on when I think about her, right. you know, and I, I feel differently about her and felt very differently about her when Monica Willie and I were in Scotland editing, <clears throat> you know, and again, that means I've, I've told this story many times, but it bears repeating that, you know, we would watch the film down and take several days off from, from it. Uh, because we knew we had to um and then we and we would designate certain periods of time to watch it so that we knew that um we would sort of like be at you know sort of a specific time of the day where we could pay attention the best we kind of agreed upon that and after we would watch it inevitably we'd ask each other the same question which was how did you feel about her today you know um and sometimes um it was 180 degrees for one of us than how we felt the previous viewing. Um, and that was exciting um, because yeah. that didn't change. That went on for weeks. It And and it made it very, very, um, uh, there, there was sort of confirmation bias for us because that's what we were after, which was that this thing could, could change on you depending on when and how you saw it and what state of mind you were in potentially. But also it made it, um, extremely challenging to know when we were finished you know um and really the bar for that was if we started leaning one way or the other with her and and felt as if we were pointing in any manner that we had failed um and so it was really about subtraction more than anything else well that, that leads me to something i want to bring up which is i think something that, that permeated all your work and, and much of all the films that i or most of the films that i love which is this um holding back, frankly, and not telling the audience how to feel and leaving um, room for interpretation. And this is a film that, you know, I got a chance to see this at Telluride first. I've seen it a couple times since. And um, this is a film that will stick around, like like in the bedroom and Little Children, box office or not, Oscars or not. It's just, it, it, it will. I have a thousand percent confidence in that, and you should too. Um is that is is that what you gravitate towards as a as a watcher of film too? I mean, Kubrick is mentioned all the time, and I want to talk about Stanley Kubrick with you a, a bit. Um, but I think of that, like I think of you know the film you were in, in Eyes Wide Shut, and how a thousand think pieces have been written, and a thousand more will be written about that film in every film he's done. Um, is that the space that you enjoy as both a creator and a consumer of film? Yeah, I mean the films that really. Um excited my imagination and made me want to 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 make my own films you know um were films that that left room for me inside of them you know and 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 that goes back to the when i first moved to new york city as a young man um and um had only been exposed to for the most part in large part to very mainstream movies and those were mainstream movies that uh, I saw hundreds of times because I worked as a projectionist at a second run movie house when I was in high school. So um, 
and and I love those movies, and I love those movies deeply. You know, and 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 they were very mainstream films, like the first Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like I've I've seen it probably three hundred and fifty times for real. You know, like I've watched it in a theater three hundred and fifty times. So I have a huge amount of. Um, you know the uh, point where Belloc swallows the fly. You know when that happens. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know everything. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've had these conversations. I tried to restrain myself the first time I really sat with Steven Spielberg and not, you know, tried to bother him about questions about them. Um, and he told me some. He was kind enough to tell me some very, very funny stories. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't really time to move to New York, you know. And I was working across the street from Lincoln Center and. Um, Somebody pushed me over there and said, you should go to the New York Film Festival that if you want to see films, not right. movies, you know. Um, and I didn't understand that distinction, but I was about ready to very quickly. Um, and, you know, seeing films like Jarmusch's, uh, you know, first film, uh, or it's Lisa's first feature film, you know, um, and and seeing the Coens had their first film there that year. And there was a Truffaut retrospective. It was the first time I'd seen like the 400 Blows, um, you know, I understood that there was a difference. These yeah. were films that that invited me to have a conversation with them, um, and they weren't talking at me. Um, and and that kind of destroyed stuff for me in a, in a, in, a, in one way because before then I would go down to Times Square and see movies like Target starring Gene Hackman and Matt Dillon and they were playing father and son and you never questioned it you know <laughs> you just you're like okay well it's a movie I mean that's how it works you know but, right. but there was this sort of very you know it was a very different way of of of, of reading a film um uh after that so yeah I mean that's a it's a long um way of saying yes uh, there, there were certain films that that made me want to 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 make my own for sure so, so you know we, we obviously can't go into everything in detail but of course you, you your path is, a, is an interesting one in that you had a, a successful career as an actor i mean i remember seeing ruby in paradise somehow you ended up being jan de guy for a couple movies is there a story there that how did how did twister and the haunting happen was he just a todd well, field I, fan no i mean I, I think what happened was um you know yes i acted for five years and then i quit uh, and the last thing that the last film that I made was Ruby in Paradise. And that was a film that Victor Nunez had inherited some money from an aunt. Uh, he made that movie for $350,000 and he made it with like a six person crew. Uh, and that had a giant effect on me. I was about ready to go. Uh, I, I'd quit acting. I was going to go um, to the American Film Institute and be a fellow. Um, and I had been accepted. And Victor was very courtly and very kind and uh, very inclusive uh, in that process. And while I was at the American Film Institute, a short film that I had made with some friends uh, played in front of Ruby in Paradise at the Sundance Film Institute uh, or Film Festival, and it won the Grand Jury Prize. And all of a sudden, I didn't even have an acting agent. I, I had a, I didn't have a manager. I had like you know, I had an attorney. Um, I started getting calls, and my wife was working at the time to try to get me through film school. And we had you know a couple of young kids at home, and. Uh, I couldn't really turn down the acting work, whatever it was, because it it was tangible and I needed to get us out of the hole. So uh, one of those jobs was, yes, Twister. You know, uh, another one of those jobs was uh, Nicole Hollis Center's first film, Walking and Talking. Great movie. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, yeah. and then the third one was Stanley Kubrick calling me out of the blue and, and saying, I think it might be good for you to come and make this film for me. And I, there was no way I was going to say no. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I had some some big acting career. I was a, I was kind of a journeyman 
actor, you know, futzing around. Uh, um, and uh, I made this one independent film and, and it kept me working for the next eight years, essentially. Are you, are you hurt they didn't come to you or maybe they did for the Twister sequel? Did you see that Minari director, Lee Isaac Chung, is directing, of all things, the, the Twister sequel, Todd? Well, it, well, it's really funny. You know, I was doing a Q&A uh, for, for TAR out in Los Angeles and I looked down and there was Sean Whalen, uh, you know, who's who's in Twister with me. Um, and he and he said, you know, they're they're making a sequel. And I said, yeah, yeah, I heard, I heard, but I don't think they're interested in any of us. You know, um, I don't know. Nor should they be. Now, I remember talking to Bill Paxton about this years ago because because oh. Bill and Bill and I were um were were really really good friends. You know, we'd made three pictures together as actors, and um, we had both of our first films as directors come out the, the same year, and our sons went to school together up in Ojai. So I used to spend quite a bit of time with the Paxtons, and um, Bill was always trying to pitch me on a, a, a Twister sequel. He was really, really um, adamant that it should happen. So I, I think somewhere Bill Bill's happy that it's happening in whatever form. A good filmmaker. Was that Frailty, his first one? It was a good, that was a good one. I enjoyed uh... it. Was, yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah. yeah, and Bill Butler shot that. Who shot Jaws with Spielberg? You know, oh really my gosh. good cameraman. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so let's talk a little Kubrick. I feel like that's an hour long, at least, conversation in its own right. But uh, look, I will take any excuse to talk about Stanley Kubrick. When, first of all, how long were you? Were you there? Was that like? six months, a year of your life. It's a rel- It's not obviously the lead of the film, but you have some significant moments. But obviously that film was, I think, the longest production short of a Avengers movie <laughs> in existence. What was your experience just in terms of length uh, and access to Stanley like? Well, you know, I, I, I knew some people that had worked with Stanley um, before. Um, and when Jan uh, Harland, uh, who was producing Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley's brother-in-law, um, his wife's brother, um, when he told me that um, we're just going to have you come over in October, this is 1996, and you'll just work a few weeks and you'll be done, I, I kind of thought that might not be the case, um, and and that that's exactly what it was. So I, you know, I started the first day of the shoot, the very first day of the shoot. And I was there for the last day of the shoot for uh, the orgy sequence. So that was October 96. And I wrapped the end of January, 1998. That was for three scenes, three scenes. Um, so I did go back and forth uh, between 96 and 97. And I went back and forth between at some point in 1997, mid 97, but probably I was there for maybe nine months out of 18 months. And you know, we shot nights. So uh, there were very, I think there's like maybe two day shots in the film, you know? Right. Um, so, so we were living like vampires, you know, it was a very odd way to live and you couldn't go off nights because it would wreck you. So um, I found, you know, I got called to set a lot when I wasn't working and I was happy to be there because there was nothing for me to do otherwise. Um, and Stanley, uh, very much like Victor Nunez, was very. Uh, if you were, if you were inside a, a project together, you were inside a project together. So, um, you know, he would have me go in the trailer and look at dailies I wasn't involved in. He would allow me to, to you know, to sort of stand behind him, um, you know, on set and things like that. So, um, you know, from as a student of film, it was a tremendous, um, you know, <laughs> incredible. Um, oh 
privilege, you know, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and it has a, you know, in, in so many ways, um, that experience uh, is, is sort of impossible to talk about, you know. Was he aware of your intentions? Like, had you talked about specifically in the bedroom or generally your intention to become a, a filmmaker? Well, I met him when he was doing camera tests. I was sort of, Jan dropped me off at this giant manor house uh, in Luton. Luton Who is the manor house. It was designed the interiors the same man that did the Titanic um, and has a very interesting history to it. But so I was just, you know, left to kind of wander around. I didn't, no one took me to in, be introduced, you know, be introduced to Stanley or anything like that. And I had a camera with me um, around my neck and I was just wandering, you know, I walked around for a couple hours just making pictures. Um, and then I came to this this ballroom uh, and I looked in and the door was cracked and there was Stanley Kubrick, you know, doing lighting tests with with Larry Smith and, and the guys. And um, and he saw me, you know, and, and, you know, he has this famous stare that everybody, you know, you could feel it coming out of out of any still photograph. And and if if you're in that beam, <laughs> you know, it's like a, it's like a tractor beam. I literally, I, you know, I almost wanted to wet my pants. So, um, and, and, and he, and he said, Hey, 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 you're here. You're here. Come on over here. You know? Um, and I, you know, I, I sort of stumbled forward and, um, and I said, you know, I, hi, I'm Todd Field. He goes, I know who the fuck you are. I hired you. You know, what kind of camera is that? And he grabbed it from, from my neck and asked me how much I paid for it and what the year was and et cetera, et cetera. And that's sort of how our conversation began. And so he knew I was a student of film. He knew that I had, I had gone through the American Film Institute, although he didn't think very much about that. He didn't believe in any kind of formal education uh, based on on how he was built. Um, and um, and so yeah, he was he was he 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 understood um, that I wasn't just interested in acting, you know. Um, and 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 Tom Cruise um, was just a tremendous. Um, person to spend time with and and he really um you know he really came to to serve stanley um yeah in every possible way and but he also you know he paid attention and and he honestly it, it was really tom you know he took me aside after a few months and said you're going to make a feature film and i said uh yeah i will i went to film school he goes no but you're going to make a feature film you've got a few months now what are you going to do you know, wow. you should write a script. And I said, well, you know, there's a story I was thinking about. He goes, go get it. Go get it. When you come back here, I want to know you got this story. It really challenged me. Um, uh, and so I did, you know, I, we, I tracked it down and somebody had the rights and they agreed to let me sort of come in. And um, by the end of, of my, my period, you know, working on Eyes Wide Shut, I had the script for in the bedroom and uh, I'd given it to Stanley. And, um, you know, I was able to actually sit with him and 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 he asked me mainly because that's what he would always do he would never tell you anything you know uh, but he would always ask you a lot of questions you know and he asked me a lot of questions about what i was thinking and why i wanted to do it and he very gently offered me some uh extremely valuable advice um and uh so yeah that was a uh eyes wide shut is you know, in very, in so many ways, um, the reason that I made that first film. I mean, amazing. I love the cruise story. I always talk about how 
that's a guy that just obviously, obviously worships storytelling and worships like filmmakers. Like you look at the filmmakers he made a point of working with, especially in like the first like 10, 15 years of his career. And it's like, you know, Oliver Stone, Scorsese, like you go down the list. He was just like knocking him off. And the, yeah, that's so telling. And and by the way, I also, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, I mean, and De Palma and yeah, everybody. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he wanted, yeah. Yeah. Um, and not to mention it, for, for you and the Kubrick connection, I, I would also love that you, of course, then establish this relationship and professional relationship with Leon Vitale, who sadly passed in the uh, last year, who was his longtime kind of custodian, assistant, associate producer. It tickled me to, to when I rewatched Little Children to see him for a nap second in a very unusual moment in the film. Uh, so- oh, you have you have, you have no idea. There was, there was a whole section with Leon that um, someday I have to unearth, you know, the way you meet that character is Leon standing at the Long Beach airport uh, with a, um, uh, with a holding a sign that says um, SK on it, which is very funny because it's for this, <laughs> it's for this character, Slutty K, but it was also but like an inside joke between fantastic. us, you know, so. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I had the privilege also of spending some time uh, with the great Adam Sandler recently. Adam oh, says yes. you guys go way back. First, tell me the connection between you and Sandler. Well, I mean, Sandler was a, you know, we were all young guys and it, it was mainly guys back then. Uh, this is like the mid 80s, late late 80s of uh, in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I think I first met Adam because I had a, a great friend, one of my dearest friends, Jimmy Vallely, and he was a comic, but he was also a writer. Um, uh, and he introduced me to a lot of other comics. And I used to... Um, I used to stay with Jim and, um, and we'd, you know, we'd sit around at the improv and it would, they, that, those were just the people that were around. And this is long before Adam was on Saturday Night Live or anything like that. Um, and, you know, I was talking to Adam about this the other day, because the, 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 my first memory of, of Adam was uh, I had sort of uh, tried to sort of boonswoggle my way into a meeting with Milos Forman, who was going to do this film that he never ended up making um, called Hell Camp that was going to take place in Japan. And um, so he was meeting people over at Sony. Um, Sony wanted him to make it with John Cusack and, and and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to go with, you know, with someone unknown. So um, I had, I was waiting in the lobby and I think it was Ellen Chenoweth was a casting person. And, um, and I saw Adam come out of the room with Milosh um, and he just looked really uh, ashen you know, um, and I went in and had the meeting um, and it went very well. And actually, uh, you know, I, I was going to end up, I ended up testing for the film uh, later on, but, but that day when I, when I came out of there, I went into the parking lot at Sony and all of a sudden I heard this, Hey, field, field. I was like, yeah. And I look over and there's Adam like poking out from behind his car. He's like, man, what was that? And I said, what do you mean, Adam? He says, all he wanted to do was talk. He just wanted to talk to me. And I said, I know that's that's how Milos casts. He he really wants to get to know you. Yeah, but he wouldn't let me do anything. I gotta do something. <laughs> and I, I it was such a it was such a perfect uh, a perfect way to articulate um the dilemma, you know, especially for 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 somebody that you know, Adam's like a Ferrari, he's got so much going on, you yeah, know. Let me under, let me play, let me do my thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let me do my thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who knew you had such a Sandler impression in you how how often does that come out 
Oh, I don't know. I, I have to apologize to Adam. I don't know. Probably was a terrible impression. No, it was great. So, so you, you guys are talking about doing something. Can you say anything? Like, I mean, obviously he, I, I'm fascinated by his career. I mean, he's got these two amazing lanes he's been in where he's like arguably the biggest comedy star, him and Jim, Jim Carrey, the last 20, 30 years. And then his dramatic work is fantastic. And it, it attracts yeah. the best yeah. PTA and James yeah. L. Brooks. And yeah. there's a reason for that. Yeah. I would. I, I'm guessing yeah. this is the second lane you guys are going to work in. This, you're not going to do your well, Madison well, sequel. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll be like that. I don't know. I mean, no, I, no. I, you know, the funny thing is, having met Adams at such a young age, you know, um, before our lives took their, you know, their their natural course um, or unnatural course, uh, as it were. Um, you know, I, I knew of his career, you know, I, 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 it's unignorable. You, you would, of course you would know about it. And um, my children were obsessed with Adam and, and, and my, my youngest child now, uh, you know, uh, who's there's, is it, he, he and his friends are obsessed with, with Adam, like obsessed, you know? Um, and I had never seen any of his films. The first film I ever saw of Adams was Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drug Glove. And how how I felt so lucky that that was my yeah. my first time seeing Adam in a film, and it and it just you know floored me because it it really is one of the great screen performances for me for of all time, you know. Um, and obviously the stuff he's done with with the Safties is just you know amazing, and um, uh, and as you mentioned the, the stuff he's done with Brooks and you know and stuff he did with Noah, um, yep, uh, Bombach. Um, so I mean he's a he he has a, a an incredible range, you know, I mean, he really, um, there's no one like him and, um, yeah, I hope, I hope we end up working together. I really do. Can you tease anything about what this idea is? Well, is it, it's a specific idea. I assume like it's a specific thought. It's more than just, Oh, we should work together. We've been talking about some things. I, it's, yeah. It's too early. To, oh. yeah. <laughs> How far outside of your, uh, conceptual, comfort zone could you imagine yourself going i teased you about like oh you're going to direct the twister sequel but like you you have a nice an amazing lane and i would love to see you just make todd field quote unquote whatever these are todd field movies the rest of your life but is there that temptation do you take the meetings with studios just to see if your skill set can jibe with the marvel the whatever like could you even see yourself playing in a sandbox that is is like that a genre, a big genre, four quadrant blockbuster kind of thing? Well, I have. I mean, that that's what advertising is. Someone will come to sure. you and say, "Do a close encounters thing, or do an adventure thing, or do you know a wink and a nod, you know, about pirates with you know huge budgets, like twelve million dollar budgets for commercials where you're making miniature ships and things like that." So I played with all those kinds of genres, and and again, going back to sort of my humble beginnings as a high school projectionist and 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 watching you know genre films these genre films you know the the creator of 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 the great american genre films you know steven spielberg himself um of course i have a love for those things and um i don't think it's a question about whether i would ever want to make them and 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 you know not to not to um sound immodest but <laughs> I, I'm fairly certain that I, I I understand what it would take to make them. Yeah. Um, those films would be very different than the films that I've made. 
I don't think that's the obstacle. I think the obstacle is that people very rightly so want you to see the thing that you've done. Um, and I don't think they're naturally thinking that um, they're going to hire me for the next born identity, you know? Um, uh, have you even have had great... those meetings? I mean, you do have the real, as you said, the commercial real, like don't even tell them about your other movies, <laughs> just show them the commercials. They might hire you. Yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I mean, it, we all get these, we all get these sort of kick me signs stuck on our backs, you know? Um, right. And sometimes they're very hard to, to pull off. So um, I, yeah, I mean, I would never say never. I mean, I, I like all kinds of movies. It's not like I'm sitting around watching Bergman all day, you know. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> crying. I, I watch a lot. Just yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I like him as much as the next person, you know. But it's not that's not my entire diet, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was yes, I contain multitudes. I like Billy Madison and Punch Drunk Love. I uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, I'll let you go on this. I mean, again, we we started by talking about all these potential other unrealized projects. Actually, I did an event with Daniel Craig last night, and I know you spent a lot of time. I heard 2,000 pages were written of Purity. That's which uh, is Jonathan Franzen adaptation. Crazy. I mean, are there any that you could see yourself coming back to if someone gave you, you know, the giant bag of money to greenlight any of these kind of projects that almost came to fruition? What's the one you would will into existence? I don't think any of them. I mean, with, you know, Daniel was in the room with John and I seven days a week. We wow. put, we rolled up our sleeves and worked for a year on that. And, you know, I think there was a sort of polite sort of, you know, um, uh, words that were said that, oh, it was, you know, a bond thing that came up, but that wasn't true. It was just the, the you know, the network just didn't want to spend what the three of us thought needed to be spent to make the thing that we'd spent a year of our lives on. Um, if that material wasn't so prophetic um and it was prophetic it it had um we were there were things in the air that wound up in that material that have unfortunately come to pass having to do with the american government having to do with geopolitics having to do with a lot of things right this is purity we by the way so to let people know the yeah yes. i mean if we, yeah. if, if we were to if we were we could never go back to it now because it would feel um cheap as if we were uh you know, we were being opportunistic as opposed to being prophetic. Right, so right. Um, there was another project that, you know, Kate Blanchett, and this is where I met Kate um, with Joan Didion that we worked on for a very long time together. Um, that will never happen. And Joan's not here anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, I don't, I don't see. Yeah, no, it's a, it's kind of like a, a family plot. You know, you, um, you have these little headstones that you have a, passing acquaintance with and occasionally drop flowers on, but I don't want to dig any of them up. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, this has been a, a real pleasure, man. I really, I'm, I'm such a fan of your work. And I mean, if folks haven't seen Tar, um, it's just a gorgeous piece of filmmaking. It will ask questions of you. You will ask questions of it. It will stick with you like all of Todd's work does. Um, yes, it's in the award season. And yes, Kate Blanchett may or may not take home yet another oscar if it if she does it's well deserved um i wish you nothing but the best with this one man and i'm and as you can tell i'm, I'm a fan of the work and I, and I hope we can continue the conversation of another time yeah me too thank you josh I, I i really appreciate it and so ends another edition of happy sad confused remember to review rate and subscribe to this show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts i'm a big podcast person i'm daisy ridley and i definitely wasn't pushed to do this by josh Ha <laughs> ha